Hello again. I'm Rex Leisure, and in this episode of EMS History, Myth, and Media, I will attempt to cover the history of medical education, how to become a doctor. Stay tuned, and let's dig in. I applied for medical school after completing an adequate set of prerequisite courses in undergraduate school, earning a competitive grade point average, achieving a good score on my medical college admission test, MCAT, and not appearing entirely antisocial during my medical school interview. I then joined with over 70 other similarly vetted classmates in medical school at West Virginia University and began two years of didactic teaching pretty intensive lecture-based curriculum. After passing all my exams in the first two years, we moved on to two years of clinical training. One or two months at a time, my classmates and I rotated through a series of major medical specialties like surgery, internal medicine, OBGYN, psychiatry, and the like. More exams focused on clinical knowledge, uh, and then came medical school graduation. I chose a specialty, family practice, as emergency medicine residency was very new at the time. More on that in future episodes. And then I did three years of postgraduate residency training. More exams, and I completed residency and was eligible to take another exam to become board certified in a specialty. Because emergency medicine was so new, having only become a recognized specialty the year before I graduated from medical school, I was eligible to sit for and pass for board exams in both family practice and a few years later in emergency medicine and became board certified in both. That, in a long and winding discourse, is the way of becoming a doctor currently. It's a reasonably recent method of becoming a doctor, however. In this episode of EMS History, Myth, and Media, I will attempt to recap centuries of history concerning medical training. Everyone's familiar with the Hippocratic Oath. It alludes to the training method of millennia, apprenticeship. In the oath, the apprentice method of training is explicit, as pointed out by the lines, quote, to hold him who taught me this art equally dear to me as my parents, to be a partner in life with him and to fulfill his needs when required, to look upon his offspring as equals to my own siblings, and to teach them this art if they shall wish to learn it without fee or contract. And by the set rules, lectures, and every other mode of instruction, I will impart a knowledge of the art to my own sons and those of my teachers, and to students bound by this contract and having sworn this oath to the law of medicine, but to no others, end quote. And so it was from the 5th century before the Common Age through the Middle Ages. One signed on with a doctor and learned under their tutoring and mentoring until it was decided that you're either ready to become a partner or go out on your own. Usually these apprenticeships were from two to five years in length. Virtually anyone could proclaim themselves a doctor and any theory of health and disease could be espoused. Hippocrates in the 5th century before the Common Era had a formal apprenticeship model to which the oath alludes, but much looser instruction models prevailed until about the 9th or 10th century, about 1500 years later, 
the 9th or 10th century in the Common Era when actual medical schools were established, first in Salerno, Italy, and then around the same period of time in India and soon in Muslim countries. Doctors became professors, and theories about disease often replaced actual teaching at the bedside of patients. The studies focused on anatomic studies and the discovery of circulation by Harvey around that time and other scientific advances led in the 16th century to the establishment of the Royal College of Physicians in London. Exams and more regimented curriculum became the basis for European medical education. And over the next 200 years or so, Americans who were interested in true medical education traveled to Europe to study. In the 18th century, some who trained in Europe began teaching in America when they came back, and Philadelphia was a center of that education. In 1765, the Philadelphia College of Medicine was founded by John Morgan and William Shippen. Interestingly, uh, the two of them had trained in Edinburgh and came back to America to begin medical education here. Dr. Uh, Dr. John Morgan established the Philadelphia College of Medicine all by himself, much to the chagrin of William Shippen, and the two then had a rivalry and a feud which lasted the rest of their life. Basically, training at that time was a preceptorship augmented by lectures. It evolved and became the University of Pennsylvania a few years later. Other schools followed in the next 50 or so years with Harvard, Dartmouth, the King's College of New York, which later merged with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of New York to become Columbia University College of Physicians, Johns Hopkins in Maryland, and out in the West, which at that time was the Midwest, Schools in Lexington, Kentucky, and Cincinnati uh, followed not very long thereafter. From the 1800 to the early 1900s, a large number of schools popped up. Uh, there was money to be made in turning out doctors, and a large portion of the proprietary schools meant that someone owned them, and there being no oversight or training, the training was very poor, and the theories that were taught were often unscientific and Graduates were unqualified and often more dangerous than helpful. In 1874, the president of Harvard, Dr. Charles Eliot, said, quote, The standard of education is deplorably low. No other civilized country has so low a standard, and as long as the pecuniary condition of medical schools is such, it will be difficult to raise them out of the slough, end quote. In 1846, the American Medical Association was formed, and not very long thereafter, they established a Committee on Medical Education. This committee attempted to set standards for instruction and insisted that students have the experience of training in well-regulated hospitals. In 1876, just two years after that dire pronouncement by the president of Harvard, some more reputable schools established the Association of American Medical Colleges. In 1900, there were around 160 medical schools. The American Medical Association in 1904 organized the Council on Medical Education and began inspections and rankings from Class A to Class C of these various medical schools. 
1909, uh, down from 160 to 123 medical schools, 61 of the schools were ranked as acceptable or Class A, 31 as doubtful or Class B, and 31 others non-acceptable or Class C. Many of those lower-ranked schools folded or were absorbed by other university medical schools. Now, at this time, individual doctors in the Western territories, completely unregulated in the 1800s, they may or may not have had any formal medical training whatsoever. In Wheeling, West Virginia, where I now live, some university-educated doctors, along with others in the state, lobbied for licensing of doctors. And in 1881, the West Virginia legislature created a board of health, which was empowered to grant licensure based on graduation from a legitimate medical school, thus becoming the first state in the country to license physicians and surgeons. Interestingly, this was fought by many doctors particularly the ones who were not university trained, but was upheld when it went even to the Supreme Court in 1889. And the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the licensing of doctors, and soon every other state adopted state licensure. This was all well documented by one of my medical school clinical professors, Dr. Bill Neal, in his book about medical education in West Virginia, entitled Quiet Advocate. The book was mainly about the enormous influence Edward J. Van Leer had on the WVU School of Medicine, growing from a two-year school to a four-year medical school with the establishment of the WVU Medical Center. Dr. Neal, in his book, related that here in Wheeling, the debate over licensure was bitter. Two of the principals in the debate were Dr. George Baird, a university-trained, staunch advocate for the Board of Health and Physician Licensure, and Dr. George Garrison, whom Dr. Baird disparaged and accused of inadequate qualifications. After licensure was passed in 1881 and upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1889, the two doctors' feuds heated up. And in 1891, Dr. Garrison shot and killed Dr. Baird in downtown Wheeling, causing quite a public uproar. Interestingly, Dr. Garrison was acquitted by a jury who felt that Dr. Baird had provoked the shooting. Thus, in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, medical schools began being standardized, doctors began being licensed, and we began to enter what we consider now the modern era of medicine. West Virginia University, as did many schools, had a two-year medical school in the early 1900s. And after the two years of lecture didactics, the students would then go to a school with a four-year program and get their last two years of clinical training in a hospital affiliated with that school. Gradually, two-year schools either closed their programs or, like WVU, upgraded to a four-year school by building teaching hospitals. WVU Medical Center opened in 1960, and that year they became a four-year medical school. I began at the school about 16 years later. Dr. Neal, the author of the book I mentioned, was an early graduate in 1966, only six years after the medical center opened. I graduated in 1980. 20 years after WVU became a four-year medical school, and 40 years ago now as I record this podcast. 
Medical education across the United States is now a tightly regulated, frequently inspected, graduate-level experience. As I've pointed out, it was not this way until about 120 years ago. From antiquity, doctors trained as apprentices under other doctors, perpetuating false ideas about the body, about the cause of disease, and about the methods of treatment. Just over 200 years ago, George Washington, the former president, developed an abscess near his tonsil. The doctors hastened his death by using bloodletting as their principal treatment. So we now look at that as a crude and ineffective method of treatment. But in 200 years, perhaps the treatment methods current doctors employ will be viewed with the same degree of criticism. In 1910, a report uh, to the Carnegie Foundation called the Flexner Report on Medical Education in the United States and Canada was published. Largely critical of medical schools, they praised several, including the University of Pennsylvania, and an upgrading of medical education ensued. There were 131 medical schools when the Flexner Report was published, and by 1920, about 10 years later, 46 of those had closed. The 1920s, federal support for medical education increased. After World War II, federal support leapt forward. Medical research grants, almost entirely to medical schools, went from $27 million in 1947 to $1.4 billion in 1966. And by 1968, about a third of faculty salaries were paid by federal grants. In the 1950s and 60s, attention to tailoring the educational experience for medical students and residents was a focus. In the 1980s to 2000, much emphasis on technology and computerization, all needing to be included in the curriculum, was prevalent. Specialization became ever more important, and students were, often by their own choice, adjusting their training toward the specialties that they wished to pursue. In another episode, I'll talk about the development of medical specialties and residency training, the years of training after medical schools, which prepares doctors to be specialists. In the mid-1990s, as a result of a well-publicized case in New York, the New York legislature enacted rules limiting the hours medical students and residents could work in a week and the number of continuous hours they could work in a shift. Previously, 120-hour work weeks with overnight 36-hour shifts were common during training. Now, 80 hours per week and 24 hours per shift were mandated, and within a few years, the New York limits were adopted nationwide. The 20th century saw oversight, regulation, and standardization of the curricula of medical schools. The current standard of two years of book work and two years of clinical education and a year of internship along with progressive testing became the path to becoming a licensed physician in every state. Remember that West Virginia started licensing on a state-by-state -state basis for doctors. In 2019, there were 155 medical schools granting MD and 36 medical schools granting DO at graduation. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of EMS History, Myth, and Media. I've marched through a couple of millennia of medical education in this episode. As with EMS and emergency medicine, not much change happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. The past hundred 
to 150 years have seen enormous advancements in the processes of becoming a doctor. In an upcoming episode, I'll cover medical specialties and talk about the birth of specialty of emergency medicine. As always, I hope you've learned a little, that you were a bit entertained, and I look forward to more episodes. Thank you for listening.